Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Dave Leefort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, we take a look at three top stories that appeared in Compliance Week in July on the new Chinese data privacy law, T-Mobile data breach, and employer responses to vaccinations. Dave talks about the upcoming ESG conference that Compliance Week is putting on. We take a look at the start of the NFL football season and the Patriots releasing Cam Newton. All on this episode of From the Editor's Desk. Know you'll enjoy this podcast from the editor's desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories that have or will appear in Compliance Week. Uh, look at other compliance stories, upcoming Compliance Week events, and talk some sports. And of course, we generally try to solve the world's problems. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Dave Leeford, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. I'm thrilled to be joining Tom to bring you some of the top stories from CW uh, that we featured in the past month or so. And so today's episode, we're going to be looking at those stories, looking at our upcoming ESG virtual conference, which has proven to be quite popular. Uh, and we're going to talk some sports like we usually do. So Dave, what were uh, some of the top stories uh from Compliance Week in August 2021 during the open house. So some we, I wanted to, to pinpoint essentially uh, three stories that really I think are going to be, uh, have an impact beyond just, you know, as, as a one-off news story. So first one is this new, uh, China just recently passed a, GDPR-like uh, data privacy law, except for the fact that it is much more stringent than GDPR. And with China, you really never know what to expect. So this this Chinese regulation, uh, it's called the Personal Information Protection Law or the PIPL. Um, it requires any business, any entity uh, handling Chinese citizens' personal data to, to minimize data collection and obtained prior informed consent. And that's really the big thing is this this uh, informed consent. Uh, now, another big thing with this, it is set to take effect on November 1st, which does not give companies, especially companies that do business in the US who might have Chinese customers, doesn't give a lot of lead time. Um, so this new law, it states that the collection of personal information for Chinese citizens should be as minimal as possible. So in that sense, it is very, very, uh, it'll, it's, it allows for uh, just a very few use cases for a essentially compliant collection of a customer data, of customer data for Chinese citizen. Um, it also allows for punishments of companies that exceed uh, you know, even even what GDPR uh, had has in place, which is four percent of annual turnover. I think the Chinese law is is five percent. Uh, so, I mean, the big thing that to watch for there is 
with GDPR, we haven't seen any fines that really come close to, uh, you know, 4% of annual revenues from any companies. Um, but you really never know what you're going to get with China because, well, it's China. Um, now, while this company is not aimed specifically at U.S. companies, U.S. tech companies, um, I would probably say, uh, according to the experts that we spoke with, it's more aimed toward uh, these Chinese uh, tech companies. Um, you would be very wise if you were a U.S. company, uh, U.S. company, and you were responsible for your uh, organization's data retention policies to keep a very close eye on this. And that's what that is sort of universally what all the experts that we that we talked to uh, said. And also wanted to point out there are there are four ways in which it's more uh, more penalizing, more stringent than GDPR. So the first is GDPR was passed in 2016 and wasn't enacted until 2018. So businesses had two years to gather feedback and to prepare for this. Uh, in this case, in China, businesses have about three months or probably less than that at this point uh, because it's going to go enforced, be enforced as of November 1st. Um, now, the second thing that makes it more stringent is uh, there is with, with this Chinese law, there is no other legal basis for data collection except informed consent. That is also a departure from GDPR where there are other legal basis for uh, the collection of data. Uh, breach reporting is another difference. So um, data controllers who have to follow GDPR must notify government authorities within 72 hours, uh, but there is an exception if they think the breach is unlikely to pose in a risk to individual rights, individual freedoms. The, the Chinese law does not have that clause. It says all breaches must be reported to the authorities. What that means exactly uh, is essentially up to uh, Chinese interpretation. So that one is, that is still sort of an unanswered question. What is what constitutes a breach? Um, that's a big one. And then the last one I wanted to go over with this story is uh, this, the, the PIPL, the new Chinese law, has a lower standard for requiring uh, notification of people who are affected by a breach. So the GDPR standard is, uh, is any harm done to an individual? If so, um, or uh, then that individual must be informed. Um, the, under the Chinese law, it is uh, all individuals that whose data, uh, any data was breached, have to be informed. So in every, in almost every sense, there is a higher, uh, a higher bar here than GDPR for this, this Chinese law. And again, we don't know exactly how this is gonna be enforced, but this is just sort of a, uh, I guess a warning to, to know who your customers are in China, to know what data, data you have collected on them, and most importantly is know why you have it. And do you have informed consent to, to have that data and to store that data? Um, and that actually brings me to the second story that, uh, that really made a, a big impact for us this, week, this month is, uh, is the T-Mobile story. And T-Mobile had its fifth data breach since 2018. And you know one of the big takeaways for, for us, there were several big takeaways, but uh, one of them is that there were 55 million, it impacted 55 million customers, more than all the other breaches. Some of these were long former customers, and some of these were 
prospective customers who never even were customers. And so the, the, the PII access includes customers' first names, last names, social security numbers, driver's license, no credit card info, but nevertheless important information. Uh, the thing that it spotlighted for me is that it spotlighted the fact that T-Mobile does not have very good data management practices. Uh, so I, I mentioned that many of the records were uh, from customers who were long gone or were for, from prospective clients that were never followed up with. Why does T-Mobile still have that information? They have no basis for even holding that information. So the, the, it sort of reinforces the idea of you should always be uh, exercising best practices uh, data cleansing. Always look at what data you hold and make sure you have a reason for still holding it. Um, the, other, the other thing that stuck out to me from this story, uh, besides the fact that it was their fifth breach, so that's a very poor record for T-Mobile, but the hacker was a 21-year-old who told the Wall Street Journal that, the, that it, essentially that it was easy to do. It was easy to get this information. T-Mobile security is awful. Uh, so T-Mobile has already has brought in KPMG to, to advise them on you know, cybersecurity practices, but the reputational damage there has already been done. And if anything, this is a, uh, a cautionary tale or a reminder for, for companies to, to button up your, your cybersecurity practices, not only for, you know, because of US law, but also for you know, other emerging laws like this new Chinese law and the GDPR, obviously, uh, and the reputational damage as well. Um, the third story I wanted to pinpoint uh, that was the, our most highly trafficked story of the month was we ran a story on uh, employee companies that want to mandate uh, employee vaccinations for uh, for COVID. So the FDA announced their final approval for the uh, the Pfizer vaccine, which has prompted many employers to start to either make a move on this or think about making a move. Uh, so you saw that with, you know, uh, a lot of school districts are mandating vaccinations for teachers. Um, a lot of local governments are doing the same. The military is doing it. Some companies are mandating it. But, you know, some companies are taking a uh, stick or the, a carrot or the stick approach where, you know, the carrot approach is, you know, you're you're offering you're not making it mandatory, but you're you're offering uh, employees either paid time off or special one-time bonuses for getting vaccinated. Uh, but more recently, you've seen more employers take the the stick approach, the, the stick approach, and that is uh, is penalizing employees essentially for for not being vaccinated or making it more difficult. The best example of this, two examples really, uh, are one is the NFL, the National Football League. They're not mandating that players are vaccinated, but they're making it very difficult for players who are unvaccinated to continue to do their jobs. They're, man they're mandating daily testing, and they have a whole bunch of other restrictions in, in place for unvaccinated players. Um, the other one that comes to mind immediately is Delta Airlines, who announced recently that uh, unvaccinated employees would face a uh, $200 monthly healthcare surcharge. Uh, for not being vaccinated. So, so that's, that's sort of the, the, the stick approach. It's making it uh, difficult on people, on employees who are, who are unvaccinated. Now, there, before you make any of these decisions, there are some, some things that the experts that we spoke with 
said you need to consider. So the first thing is you want to look at the numbers. You want to ask your employees. So you first of all, I mean, a lot. One question that we had is, is it okay to ask employees if they're vaccinated? And the answer that we got is yes. It is legal to ask employees about their vaccination status. So that might be classified as medical information, but as long as that information is not disseminated beyond those in the company who absolutely need to know, uh, it is okay to ask uh, your employees this. Um, the, now, the American with Disabilities Act requires employee medical information to be stored separately from regular personnel files, so you need to make sure that if you are storing that information, uh, that you do keep that, that in mind too. Um, you know, the other part of that is when you look at the numbers, uh, and let's say you get the numbers back and 65% of your employees are vaccinated. Um, what per, what's your goal percentage? Like what you need to have, I think in order to do this the right way, what's your goal? What, what percentage of employees do you need to be vaccinated for all your employees to feel safe? And by what date? Um, the second thing, the second recommendation is, is to be aware of the blowback. Um, so one of the biggest fears uh, of employees considering vaccine mandates is the same with requiring employees to return to the office, is worried about uh, employees leaving in, in mass. So you need to be ready for that. If you're willing to, to go all the way and say, yes, we are mandating uh, all employees get vaccinated by this date, uh, you should expect some blowback in the form of employees deciding to take their uh, take their talents elsewhere. Um, the job market is it's a it's a buyer's market now, if you if you will, it's, or, or a, I guess an employee's market, I'll call it. Uh, so they you know there are more jobs out there than there are employees to fill them. So you should expect some blowback and expect expect some people uh, to decide to leave if you do decide to implement a a mandate. Um, the other thing is the is the messaging that you uh, that you go out with on this, and this is one of the most sensitive areas. And you should the advice that we got was start with the why. Why are you mandating, or why are you considering, or why are you encouraging your employees to be vaccinated? You know, and the answer is you should be emphasizing the health and safety benefits to to everyone as a whole as your as your why. Uh, so. And then the other part of that is that whatever mandate you decide to implement, it shouldn't be immediate. It should be set at least a month or more into the future to allow employees time to get vaccinated. So it has to be sensitive. Uh, it has to be um, the messaging around it has to be sensitively. It has to be crafted uh, very carefully. Um, also, uh, workplace accommodations is another thing to consider. If an employee is refusing to be vaccinated, you know, can steps be taken to mitigate their exposure to other employees? Can they work from home? Can they be uh, barred from traveling on behalf uh, of on behalf of the company? Can they, if they do come to the office, can they work in a separate space? Can they avoid common areas? Uh, now, unvaccinated employees would continue. You know, the other thing is, would one other option is unvaccinated employees might have to continue wearing masks for longer than vaccinated employees. So these are all options if you if you sort of want to fall short of that mandate, but you want to uh, sort of push people in that direction or incentivize them. Um, and then the last thing is testing. 
So one of the ways companies are, are softening mandates or sort of creating a, a soft vaccine mandate is to require unvaccinated employees to be tested uh, on, a regular, on a regular basis. So, in, so one warning that we got in reporting on the story is that that approach could backfire because the employers will have to be paying for these tests in most cases and they'll have to find tests that are reliable and that are accurate. So then the, the, the onus then, the burden uh, for doing the testing and for making sure that the tests are accurate then fall on the employer. So, you know, at the end of the day, you could find yourself as an employer spending a significant amount of time and amount of resources uh, in testing. And that ultimately doesn't get you any closer to your vaccination goals. So that was that was a warning that we got uh, from the experts that we talked to uh, about that. Dave, turning to September, I wanted to highlight what I think is a very exciting and indeed timely conference that you have upcoming around ESG. And I was wondering if you could tell us uh, in your mind some of the highlights and then uh, we're going to also include it in the show notes. But if anyone wanted more information or registration information, uh, where could they go? Yeah. So so first off, the the I'll give the info. We have an ESG virtual event um, on September 13th and 14th. Uh, so that's next it's about a week from a week from tuesday so uh and they can go to compliancesweek.com uh click on the it's right there on the home page it's called everything esg uh click on that if you go through the the checkout process and enter um uh dave 100 d-a-v-e my first name what followed by 100 um as your code you can get it in free so we're offering um free access for listeners um, and it's going to be, it's a two-day event. Uh, obviously, this ESG is a, it's a really, really hot topic right now because, you know, uh, SEC chairman in particular, Gary Gensler, um, has indicated that he, for one, and he's one of many, really, in favor of standardizing ESG-related disclosures for public companies. So it's an incredibly important, incredibly popular topic within the compliance space in particular because more and more, these duties of, of accounting for a company's ESG efforts are falling to the compliance function. Um, and that sort of is the key here. And that's why folks in compliance are, this is very much a front and center topic with them because these are the things they're worried about. They're, you know, companies are constantly uh, touting their ESG efforts. And, and a lot of times, uh, you know, you, you talk about companies making promises about um, emissions, carbon emissions efforts on social justice efforts. And a lot of times it's it, these are these are messages crafted by, uh, you know, the the public relations arm of the company. So one of the things that we're discussing in this upcoming event is the importance of telling senior leadership or making sure to making sure that senior leadership gets the message that compliance needs to have a voice in these in this messaging. They need to be a part of the conversation in creating a company's uh, marketing and public relations efforts. Otherwise, you run the you run the very real risk of uh, of the company painting a rosier than reality picture. Uh, something you know that that popularizing the the phrase greenwashing, where a company says. Hey, we're doing X, Y, Z to cut down on emissions, and a year later, it's proven that no, they didn't do any of those things, or maybe they did one of those things. 
And so that's that's been causing a lot of reputational damage. And and that uh, so soon it's going to it's going to result in actual damage. Like if there is a standard standardization of ESG related disclosures, you can you can bet there's going to be uh, some penalties for not following through on, on what you promised. So a lot of our sessions are around how to get in the ear of senior leadership to uh, to one, make ESG a uh, priority, but two, to make sure that compliance is very much a part of the conversation around setting those setting those standards and, and just being careful what you promise. Uh, Dave, uh, we're going to now turn to my favorite segment, which of course is sports. And we rarely get breaking news on this podcast, but we have actually some breaking news that happened today. And that's around the NFL and specifically the New England Patriots have cut Cam Newton. Um, so that's going to be our lead in. I was going to ask you about the Patriots anyway. Um, surprise, not surprise, inevitable after last season. Uh, what does this mean for Cam? Uh, what are your initial thoughts on Cam Newton being released by the Patriots? Yeah, so that you know, I think you should have a breaking news sounder, Tom. I don't, I, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear the, the breaking news. Uh, the sound effect that some of these sports radio stations have, but you, know, as you know, I'm I'm in New England, I'm in Boston, so I'm I'm a big Patriots fan, and I have to say, uh, I was very surprised by this. This this came as a surprise to, I think, most New England fans who've been paying attention this preseason, because all indications have been that Cam Newton was going to enter the season as the Patriots starter, because that's what Coach Bill Belichick has said pretty much consistently since the day Cam Newton was re-signed in the offseason. Now, that's not to say it was a popular decision. Everybody, you know, I would say most New England Patriots fans wanted, would rather have seen Mac Jones, the rookie they drafted out of Alabama, Alabama with the 15th pick, uh, start, start ahead of Newton. But I guess the general consensus was that, you know, we figured that Belichick would start Cam Newton the first few games Give, give Mac Jones a little bit more time to adapt to the NFL uh, and then sort of ease him in the same way the Dolphins did with, uh, with Tua uh, last season. Um, however, this, this announcement of Cam's release re- literally came out of nowhere. I mean, just yesterday, Belichick was talking about, uh, you know, uh, talking as if Cam Newton was going to be his week one starter. Like, he didn't come out and say that but he did not give any indication otherwise. And that was the impression he gave essentially the entire preseason. And this is essentially despite the fact that Mac Jones notably outperformed Cam Newton during um, during training camp, especially in joint practices and in gameplay. Now, what I'm wondering, and this, this all does tie back to compliance here, is the I'm wondering if last week had any kind of impact on this decision because Last week, Cam Newton, um, he's one of the few New England Patriots players who are, uh, have not been vaccinated um, for COVID. And he broke protocol. Um, he didn't contract COVID, didn't test positive, but he was out of town for a few days on a medical visit. And he was tested every day. But on one day, one of the tests he took was not a NFL-approved test. So he, as a result, was had to sit out of practice for five days. Uh, now, one of those days was a joint practice against the New York Giants, and Mac Jones, 
you know, elevated to number one quarterback status. Uh, he played great in that joint practice against the Giants. And so to me, that was sort of the turning point in uh, at least public perception of, of Mac Jones as a viable day one starting quarterback for the Patriots. And what I wonder is whether that, uh, you know, whether the Patriots organization was disappointed in Newton and his, you know, inability to, I guess, stay on the field. In this case, you know, he didn't, I guess you could say he didn't do anything wrong. He did, uh, he followed the spirit of the rule, did not follow the letter of the rule, did not get the right kind of testing. But nevertheless, the way Belichick sees things is you're either available or you're not available. And uh, Newton was not available. And, and Mac Jones sort of took the reins um, and did a great job. And I, and, I, and I just wonder if that was sort of a, a turning point in the organization's mind. Um, it does. So I guess in summary, yes, it's a surprise. For me personally, it's a welcome surprise. I am much more excited about watching week one with Mac Jones at the helm uh, for the Patriots than I was with Cam Newton who last year was very, very disappointing and had a very bad season. And uh, it was disappointing to see him resign. Now, in terms of Cam's future, uh, one thing that the Patriots did is they, they didn't try to trade. They gave him his outright release. So as of today, he can go, he can sign anywhere he wants. Um, so I don't know what his future is. I'm trying to think off the top of my head of a, a quarterback needy team that might jump at the chance to sign Newton, um, but you know he showed last year that his his days as any uh, anything close to an elite passer are over. He still has the he still has uh, his legs. He can still run. Um, he did score 12 over 13 rushing touchdowns last year, so uh, he is a, a viable quarterback. I wouldn't say he's one of the 32 best quarterbacks in the NFL. I don't think he'll get a starter's role, but I would anticipate he signs somewhere. Um, but who knows? I wish him the best, but. I'm, but that being said, I'm glad he's not with the Patriots anymore. <laughs> so maybe that ties into one of the points you highlighted in the article about uh, vaccination status, which is that it is one factor an employer can take into account uh, about your employer, employee status. And if it uh, if there's a reasonable accommodation for an yeah, employee, this is another great uh, such question. as working from home or other I steps that, that could be taken, you may be able to keep that employee. But if there's no reasonable as accommodation, as you said, you're either available or you're not in the NFL. Uh, if you're not available because you uh, broke a COVID bigger protocol, campaign in 2019, uh, that's a factor that an NFL coach can take and should take into consideration. So uh, I think that's actually a great point uh, that if there's no reasonable accommodation, and he can't be with the team. He's literally not available. And, and maybe one of the 53 other slots was more valuable uh, to the by 2050. Patriots. Uh, perhaps uh, at some point in the future, we can reflect back on uh, Cam's career. It's, it's ups and downs. But now I want to turn to baseball. And they spent and, uh, about $2 at one point, billion I fought on a network Red of charging Sox stations were, uh, across the U.S. Heading towards the playoffs. I'm so not quite sure anymore, me, but uh, any chance they can make a September run, or do you think uh, we're looking at uh, 2022 for your beloved Sox? Competitiveness, yeah, so, but it seems to me you know, that whatever they set their off minds to do, whether it's good or bad, very, very, they accomplish it. Uh, positive and, frankly, unexpected, unexpectedly strong start. Uh, that being said, they they have really faded. Um, I think they made a big mistake not investing in this team at the trade deadline. They, you know, they traded for uh, Kyle Schwarber, 
who was hurt at the time. They said they were going to try him out at first base, potentially. Uh, but he's played first base, I think, one time since joining the Sox. And, you know, a, a good way to, to look at this in, in context is to look at what the Yankees did. They added Anthony uh, Rizzo, uh, another first baseman uh, from the Cubs, uh, who has been, uh, who started off with the Yankees red hot and really gave that team a big boost. And since the trade deadline, the Yankees have leapfrogged the Red Sox uh, the Sox are—I wouldn't say they're in a free fall because they're—I think they're going to hang on to the second wild card spot. I do think they're going to make the playoffs. I do not have high hopes for how far they'll go. They have a lot of holes in their lineup, big holes in the bullpen, uh, and some major question marks in the rotation after the the number three spot. Chris Sale has been electric since coming back from Tommy John surgery, so that has been really fun to watch. Um, and I do think he's an X factor. So, you know, if, if you end up in a, in a one card wild card playoff against the Yankees with Chris Sale on the mound, uh, you've got a real good chance in that game. But, you know, if, if you then have to face uh, the Astros in a uh, division series, I don't see the Red Sox doing uh, doing much there. So I do think this team is built for 2022 um, at this point. And I think probably uh, Bloom is uh, hard of parts. Uh, probably knew that and figured that, and that played into his thinking at the at the trade deadline. So it, it is disappointing um, to to start the season so well from a you know being a Red Sox fan, but uh, but now I think you're seeing what the Red Sox sort of were projected to be, which is a you know probably a little bit better than average team, uh, a little bit above 500, but because of their strong start, you know they they might finish with you know, 88, 90 wins and sneak into that second wild card spot, but don't have high hopes. So for my Astros, uh, taking your cue to embrace the hate of <laughs> all other teams and their fans, uh, I've had a lot of fun this year with uh, a lot of the antics uh, that the Astros have faced traveling. But the thing that strikes me about this team, Dave, is there are four starters, or excuse me, four players left from the 2017 World Champions. And uh, that's a heck of a turnover. Now those four starters are Correa, Altuve, uh, Uri Gurial, and Alex Bregman, cornerstones of that team. But they brought up uh, through their farm system some really top-notch players that are, that are leading them. Um, they right now lead the AL West. rather. So uh, hopefully um, we'll be able to get some momentum for the playoffs. But uh, I'm really interested in the National League this year because of the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Padres. The Padres are, are fading a little bit, but uh, the Giants and Dodgers have hated each other since time immemorial, kind of like you and the Yankees. Uh, so I really hope we get to see a, a, a National League Championship Series between the Dodgers and Giants. I think uh, that would that would be great. Dave, uh, we're moving towards the end of our time for this episode, uh, but uh, this episode is going to post on uh, September 3rd. And we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, certainly the biggest event uh, for America in my lifetime when we were attacked. And I think it's been made even more poignant now by the fall of Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul. And uh, you were in Boston uh, on 9-11, but I wanted to ask, where were you and what were you doing that day? And maybe some of your reflections uh, uh, now, 20 years later uh, after that event. 
Yeah. So it's, wow. It's really hard to believe it's been, it's been 20 years. That's, um, that's crazy. Uh, at the time, uh, I was actually, I was still, uh, I was still a sports journalist at the time. I was working for ESPN, living in central Connecticut. Uh, I was working nights at the time. So nights and weekends. And if I remember right, this happened on a, I think it was a Monday or, or a Tuesday. I think it was the Tuesday after a week after Labor Day. I was actually, uh, I was coming off my weekend and I was visiting a friend in, in Hoboken which Hoboken, New Jersey, just really just across the river from, from Manhattan. So I was, uh, you know, I remember that morning um, of September 11th getting a call or I was, I was still asleep. Uh, and I remember the, my friend's voice on the answering machine waking me up saying, Hey, I think Dave, you should wake up. I think a plane flew into one of the, the twin towers, you know, that this is, this is nuts. I, I just heard it on the train. Let me know if it's true. So you know, I got up then and it was, you know, sort of a, uh, I don't know. I, I was sitting, was sitting in front of the TV watching the New York City local channels. Um, and the thing that I remember most vividly is the, the announcer showing, um, w with the footage of the tower burning on the screen. And it, this was actually in between when the two, the two planes hit. So, you know, live on TV, uh, we saw the second plane hit the tower. And what the, the anchor said at the time was, okay, we just saw a replay of, uh, what happened when the, the, as the first plane hit. I didn't realize we had that footage. And then the anchor beside him said, no, this, that was not a replay. What we're watching is live TV. It appears a second plane has hit the, has hit the tower. And then, you know, like everybody in the world, once you, once you saw that, you know, once you once you knew that a second plane had hit the had hit these towers, you knew that there was there was no chance that this was an accident. And that's really when um, when in my mind it started to it started to sink in that th that this was a, a an attack on the United States. And that's when you know, for me, I I was I walked around honestly. I walked around in the days most of the day. I could not couldn't you know New York City was locked down. I was walking around Hoboken. There's a park actually uh, in Hoboken where you can overlook the, I think the, the Hudson River and look into uh, the financial district in Manhattan where the um, where the towers had stood. Um, and this was after they had collapsed. And I was standing there with you know hundreds hundreds of other people who were crying or trying to get in touch with loved ones. Or it was. Um, it was a scene that I'll never forget. And my friend eventually did make it home. And we were, you know, we were sort of beside ourselves. Like, okay, our first instinct was, what can we do to, what can we do to help? And so we walked to a local um, hospital and there was, you know, there were, there were people there to give blood because that was really the only thing that you could do. And there was a line, a block, a block long for people who wanted to give blood. And of course this, this was not anticipated. So it was, you know, we were, we were eventually turned away and told to go home, like, you know, sort of like, thank you, but you know, there's, there's literally nothing that you can do here. Um, so I remember sitting in front of the TV the rest of that day and that night and just thinking about like, okay, this is, the world is, is going to change after this. Um, and it's still, it's still, it still feels like that, that changed, 
world today. I mean, even you know, 20 years. You mentioned the the, the Afghanistan conflict and that coming to a uh, sort of a, a, a sad um, a sad ending in itself. Um, but you know, that's the that's sort of what what started us down the path of getting into Afghanistan and and you know, sort of ending up in a uh, two decade long war that didn't really accomplish all that much besides, you know, uh, killing bin Laden, um, trying to establish a new government that was overthrown in a matter of two weeks. So it was, it's all, it's all very, you know, it's all very sad, very disheartening, but I, but that day still stands out um, poignantly in my mind. And I remember I couldn't leave for maybe two days because the bridges were closed and there was uh, really no way out um, of where of the location where I was at in particular, but um, but yeah, that, that, those were those were my those were my recollections. I mean, and granted, you know, mine were everyone has their own unique stories. And I remember the first thing I did was I drove straight to my parents' house. I didn't even want to go home. I had a one bedroom apartment in Connecticut, but instead I just drove to Boston where my parents lived, and you know, I wanted to just be with be with family. Um, so. So yeah, that's 20 years, can't believe it. Well, Dave, unfortunately we're near the end of our time for this episode. I hope our listeners will join us again uh, next month where we check in on the comings and goings at Compliance Week. I'm Tom Fox. I'm Dave Leefort with Compliance Week. Uh, and thank you again, Tom, for uh, another great, uh, another great chat. Look forward to it next month. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Dave and I on the last Friday of each month where we get together to take a retrospective look back of what's appeared in Compliance Week and what may be coming for the next month.
you are interested in how ESG intersects with compliance, check out my new podcast, The ESG Report, also appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network.